Hey guys, and thanks so much for tuning in to this edition of Free Thinking with Montel. And I'm really excited about having a guest on that I have today because this is kind of something that, that uh, resonates very much so with my family, my friends, and that is, you know, animals. And a lot of people have always asked us, you know, why are you such an avid dog and cat and animal supporter? And I've always said that, you know, because we know for a fact that animals and dogs especially really have a such a unique bond to humans and it's something that has been proven and i always hear from people saying no 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 there's no proof behind that that's a bunch of garbage no the truth of the matter is it has been proven and recently the guest today is going to actually we're going to tell you how she's i I ran into an article oh about a week ago on cnn uh on its website it talked about some of the work that our guest has been doing and has validated what has been assumed, and there have been other tests that have said this, but now is really, really validated the bond between humans and their pets like dogs. So my guest today was appointed to the Centennial Enhancement Center, I'm sorry, to the Centennial Enhancement Chair in One Health Wellness at the University of Saskatchewan with a focus on addiction and mental health. She's a professor in the Department of Sociology with the associate with an associate appointment in the School of Public Health. She's also a senior research associate with the Canadian Center on Substance Abuse, Substance Use and Addiction. She's an adjunct professor in the Department of Sociology and Anthropology at Carleton University and a past research associate with the Indigenous Peoples Health Research Center. She is a 2013 graduate of the Canine Behavior Psychology Academy Extreme Canine Professional Dog Training School in Illinois, USA, and completed a certificate uh, course in animal assisted therapy and activities at Harcum College in 2014. In 2020, she completed the non-human nature research methods course at the Karulis Center for Nonviolence. She has thousands of hours of practice providing community-based animal assisted intervention. She's here today to discuss studies on how animals impact our lives in so many positive ways. Dr. Colleen Dell, thank you so much for being a part of Free Thinking with Montel and May. Thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. Your article was really, really, really intriguing. And before we get into that and the depth of that, tell us a little bit about your work in criminal and social justice and also in addiction. Yeah. So I started uh, after university, actually it was during my undergrad, I started volunteering with Elizabeth Fry Society, and it's an organization here where they assist women in conflict with the law. And that really paralleled what I was doing in university. And then I worked for Corrections Canada. I worked as a parole officer, and then I also worked in the research branch. And through all of that, what, what really stuck out to me was how much addictions was a part of all the lives of these individuals who were incarcerated. So that attention to addictions really became a focus for me. And then also social justice and how many inequities there were with people who were imprisoned. And then I was also really interested like around the addiction part, but also the healing and the recovery and how do we move past this and how do we do prevention, right? Instead of putting on these band-aids, really bad band-aids with uh, incarceration. 
And just so people understand that, you know, when you, you talk about social injustice, where we talk about that here, social justice, we talk about it here in the United States. But explain, because I think a lot of people think that Canada doesn't have a social justice problem. Oh, for sure. Uh, just in my province here in Saskatchewan, uh, 90% of those of individuals who are incarcerated in our local jails are Indigenous. And that's our background in Canada, the impact of colonization, right? All the horrific impacts that have happened in our, in our society, similar to in the States, you see them in the criminal justice system, right? As these inequities or the same as in child welfare. So a large number of the children who are in our child welfare system, which some people see as like a mini prison, right? Are Indigenous children. And there's all these determinants of health that lead to that. So it's just, yeah, it, there is definitely it's a, it's a different form of slavery. I, I've, I've often yeah. talked about the fact that, you know, though we ended slavery back in, you know, 1865. I mean, you know, we created a new enslavement system through the criminal justice system. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think for myself, even just going back to, you know, in a more of an impoverished neighborhood where I grew up and then just with my really fortunate to go to university and to to start to understand a lot of that, it was a choice for me, and, and some people don't agree with that, but for me, it was more about working in the system for those individuals to help make their lives better and help with that healing. Um, yeah, so that's how I kind of ended up in that area. Yeah. Are you starting to see the trends change in Canada? I mean, you know, here we had the huge big Black Lives Matter, you know, protest all over the country for years, for a couple of years, and and it seemed like for a minute it made a little bit of a difference, but I, I really don't believe that it made any difference at all. I think people just, you know, paid lip service to uh, change. But I think what it did do was it emboldened the younger generation to speak out about the fact that they don't have the same hangups that their, you know, grandparents or their parents have had. Are you seeing that same kind of a attitude shift in the younger generation in Canada? I agree with that. Absolutely. And I see that, you know, in my nephew who's 20, I see it in the students in my undergrad classes and so forth. But I think what we have had in Canada is we have the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, which was a large report talking about um, Canada's history of colonization. And what, so there was lots of attention across the country and, you know, like you say, more lip service. Some people took it to heart. But what happened last year was um, incredibly tragic is a number of graves were found from the. Yeah, I, would, I, would, I would think that that, this, you know, that happened a couple of different times. The discovery of the number of graves where these were, you know, uh, uh, burial sites for hundreds. Right. In a couple of cases, yeah. a couple hundred or a hundred children who were indigenous yeah. children who just seemed to have just been thrown away. Yeah. And that. I think everything is built, you know, everything's baby steps and you hear one thing, you hear another, like for the general population. And that seemed to be a point where people were really taken aback and finally said, yes, this is true. I need to understand this. So I saw a monumental shift with that personally from colleagues to, you know, NGOs that I work with and so forth. So, I mean, it's incredibly sad and difficult, but it's also something that people weren't able to turn away from. Not everyone, obviously, right? But that's something that people weren't easily able to turn away and say, oh, this was history. No, this wasn't history. And this is right now. These are those children and they deserve dignity now. And people 
have really come on side with that. So that is encouraging, incredibly sad, but encouraging at the same time for positive movement forward. And I, I kind of, I, I get encouragement. I, I have, uh, you know, millennial children and ex-annual children and or generation Xers. And, yeah. um, you know, I just see a different social awareness among them and their peers um, where I think, you know, I just, I, I, I look forward to the day where, you know, my generation is out of here, where we can leave this to smarter minds and minds that are, have the ability to accept others better than we do. Yeah. And you know what that makes me think of? I mean, that, that I have, as you mentioned, I have a chair in One Health and One Health is a relationship between animals, humans, and the environment, right? So a lot of One Health traditionally has focused on zoonotic diseases, like um, disease that, that can transfer from animals to humans, but there's also this side called zoea, and it's about the positive benefits of animals in our lives, in particular companion animals. And so, you know, even for me as an academic in sociology and saying, oh, uh, we need to consider animals as family members or the human-animal bond or what have you, there's really nothing. I don't have any colleagues that are doing that, right? There's very few of us that are doing that and looking at that. So that's something that's new. But if I talk to my students that are taking the class, so for example, I just started two years ago, the first animals in society class uh, offering in sociology for the first time. And it's like, that's just, it's kind of mind blowing when you think that we haven't thought about the role of animals in how we live in society, right? Yeah, I was going to ask you, I was going to ask you what ultimately led you to study the therapy, study therapy of animals. You know I mean? Yeah, yeah, in that, yeah, so I'll, so when I think about, it's just, it's interesting because it's just like, well, how haven't we thought about animals, humans, and the environment together? It's pretty obvious if one isn't healthy, the others won't be healthy. And if you look at the environment and how we treat animals at present, or even how we treat other people, it might not be surprising because neither or out of those three are not super treated really, really well, right? There's so I think for me though, where I started to really think about this is my research background was in criminalization for mostly indigenous women in prison. Um, but then I also moved towards more healing. So we called culture as intervention and the understanding of wellness in one of our large projects and the elders we work with across the country is about, it's so different than a Western understanding of health, right? So when we talk about health and we go to the doctors, like, it's an absence of disease, but in indigenous understanding, it's about relationship to family, relationship to, uh, to the environment, recognizing the, the animals that, that we live with. And right, so it, it's all of that. It's so much more holistic. And I think that's probably, I'm pretty sure that's probably kind of where it came from, of where I started to think, what am I doing and why ain't I considering animals and all of this? And I can't just corner that out when I'm doing indigenous specific health projects with the community. That should be overall, right? We should be considering that generally. And, you know, I think it's probably catching on quicker there in Canada than it is here. And it's as though we do have a lot. I think the, the number of pet owners in the United States is going up, but I don't think it, well, I, I may be wrong. I, I, I cause I kind of consider, 
you know, I and my wife, we, we just recently lost a pet after 15 years and it was devastating to us as a family. Um, it still is devastating to us as a family. Just to, to talk about, you know, all the things that we share with them. This is, you know, a little uh, a doggy that um, literally started traveling with us from age eight weeks on and traveled the world with us. Um, uh, and literally, I don't believe there was many. I, I can count the number of days that we were without him, either one or the other, both of us without him on maybe two hands. I mean, because uh, over the course of 15 years. And he was in as integral a part of my family as any other family member that we have. And we we, we are still uh, in quite a bit of pain from the loss. I mean, we, we want to be able to, to not replace him, but we want to be able to add another addition to our family. But that's been tough because, you know, it, it's all uh, points back to him. And, um, you know, but... I think for each of us, I and my wife, I mean, we both, you know, I, I have an illness, um, a chronic illness, and I really do believe that there were times that I, even even subconsciously and consciously, would just sit with Max and put him on my lap and hold him really tight and, you know, look in his eyes and, and, and keep him by because I knew that he was helping me uh, cope with some of my issues emotionally and even in some ways i would feel better you know in some of my physical manifestations of my illness just by having him be there and be present yeah you know there's research too and it's not research our office has undertaken but we draw on it to help explain what we find and so you know sitting there and petting max right can increase those love hormones the oxytocin that's really well shown it also can decrease cortisol, right? Those stress hormones. So without a doubt, right? There is evidence more and more coming out showing that just those physical benefits from being with that animal. And then there's also in all of our work, whether we're in an addiction treatment center or we're in a prison, wherever we are, or I'm at a homeless shelter, it's that non-judgmental aspect, I think is huge, right? That no matter what, human to human, we judge. We do. We just do, right? And we try not to. And some of us try really hard not to, but we do. Yeah. And we perceive that those animals don't. I'm not going to say that they don't, because I'm not sure. I had a bulldog. I think she was judging me kind of a lot, actually. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. But no, I we perceive them not to, and they probably don't. You know, They do want to be with us. There's a long history of domestication of animals and how we live together with dogs. So it's not surprising. It's it's not surprising at all that people feel better when they're with them. I hope I'm not mistaken when I say this, but I remember reading an article a couple of years ago that says that, you know, really the dog is the only animal, I think, believe is the only animal in a world that in the world that if a man points in a direction, the dog will look that way. Dog will do, you know, you can point in front of, stand in front of a lion for five hours and point there and point there and the lion won't look. You do that to a horse. You can do that to a cow, but you do that to a dog and a dog will look. And Wait. also also when you, I think a dog is the only animal that has, and this, this must be, um, you know, evolutionary because I think that 
back in the beginning of, of, of our cave life, that was one of the first animals that we domesticated, correct? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And there's, there's a lot of people that, that looking at, we have a couple of people here in Canada that are just showing that strong domestication and how we learn to work together and live together, right? And became dependent on one another. There's such a strong, long history there. But I think just even as you're saying, I'm not sure, I'm not sure with the research around the pointing, and I'm sure that's true, but what's coming out more and more that I've seen now and quite a bit in the media and the literature is that, and there was just a piece on the, our local radio here yesterday about the sentience or the fact that animals could feel. And so they were talking about we shouldn't, you know, just so much, we're finding out so much more of what they can do or the dog, right? Their ability to smell and so forth. But that overall about the sentience, the fact that these animals feel, they're saying we shouldn't be asking, you know, does the fish feel pain or does the dog feel pain or whatever? We should be asking now what animal doesn't because that's how far the science is going. And you're seeing some countries that are moving towards that with different legislation and what have you. So it's really interesting and, and it's super interesting with the dog because we know so much about the dog and being able, I always say my takeaway for whatever I do is if you can start to think like a dog, right? And that simply means understanding who that animal is. Cause I think a lot of times what we do is we try to, we give them human characteristics and we want them to fit into our lives. But the best way to work with them and coexist with them and have these lovely families with them is to understand who they are and what they need, right? So for example, the dog's nose. So I always say this, um, and the research shows this really well. So if you, if you came over and you came into my kitchen and I was cooking you some vegetarian stew, you'd like, oh, Colleen, this is nice smelling vegetarian stew. My dog would walk in and say, oh, Colleen, I can smell the carrots and the onions and the oregano and the can smell each of those things separately. So you think about that and how they're even able to smell in traverse time. So, you know, when they smell that fire hydrant, it's because a dog was there. A dog could have been there yesterday. And with my dog smelling it, they could say, oh, that dog wanted to mate or that dog was angry. That was a nice dog. What have you? So when I think like that, and you think about our relationships with them, it's quite amazing to think about how they can complement our lives because they add something that we don't have human to human and the same vice versa. This is what we can give to them because we have things that they don't, right? Well, tell us a little bit about your recently published study on the impact of therapy dogs in the emergency room. Yeah, and that, that leads in beautifully to that because what we did is we took their, this was our first clinical controlled trial where we were able to take therapy dogs into the emergency department. So in 2015 in Saskatchewan in Canada, we had the first emergency department in which therapy dogs were allowed in. So a therapy dog is, I always, my definition is just a really friendly family pet that likes to meet people. <laughs> so it's just, if they were a person, they'd be super outgoing, right? So they went into the emergency department and they visited with someone for 10 minutes. And then we had a control group where they had no visit. And so the people who visited with the dog, we measured 10 minutes after and then 20 minutes after that. And it's the same for the control group. And we found that those who visited with the dog decreased their pain, decreased their depression, 
increase their well-being and decrease their anxiety. We had a scale, a, a, a scale that's well known, and we used that. So it was really, we had two studies before that. We had one where we just had the same dog and we measured before and after how the person felt. And they talked about decrease, like increasing in comfort and decreasing in stress. And they also said they felt lesser pain. Um, we had another study in there where we just asked people in the emergency department, if a therapy dog was here, would you want to meet it? And 80% said yes. And one of the reasons was for pain. But being able to do this controlled trial was really, I mean, it's scientifically, it's it's of a higher standard, right? And we have more, um, oh, I can't think of the word. We just have more credit or whatever you want to say about now saying, yes, we're finding more we're able to add more and more science to what probably most people just know intuitively if they have a pet. And again, I mean, I guess, uh, you know, we should talk about the fact that, you know, the reduction in stress is a reduction in inflammation or suction and all kinds of things that are happening in the body that yeah. continue to keep you in, a, in, in that, that high anxiety state. Exactly. You know, and the Dr. James Stempion, who I worked with on that study, and we had a, we had a huge team on that study. Um, he always says, you know, coming to the emergency is probably, it could be the worst day of your life, right? It, it really could be. So what can we do as a care team to make that better? And usually, probably in the States, like it is here, you're there for a long time. You Absolutely. might be there for a long time before you see that doctor. Um, so it's not necessarily the most you know, um, um, welcoming location on the planet either. No. So, how, so now imagine a dog coming in, right. And, and you get to, you get to experience that. So you get to pet the dog, you get to learn about the dog. So you have a distraction there, but we, we need to do more research to understand why this is happening. But just from the, a lot of the other studies I conducted, I think it's really interesting that people, so the, the, the dog goes in with the handler and the person gets to learn a bit about them, but often the person will quickly turn to memories and memories of their own pet, pets that are here and pets that have passed as well. If they're an older person, sometimes their memories when they're kids and they're talking about this dog they had as if it was still here and that might've been 50 years ago, right? I can think of my first cat and I would probably talk about that cat is here because it had such a connection to me. So I'm really interested in that as well, in memories. I'm not a memory researcher, but it sure brings something up. And you have these discussions as handlers with that dog there, and this puts the person in a different space. And I guess that's really nailing it because it is a distraction. I mean, you you, you literally are for, before you walk in there, you're so focused on me, 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 and what's going on with me. Then that dog comes in and, puts a little veil there, puts a little curtain there for just a second, making you not think about your own suffering, but thinking about this dog who's giving you just kisses just to give you kisses. Yeah, absolutely. And then also there was a great study coming out of the States where they measured the impact of the dog on the staff because being a staff in an emergency department, and I just know here now being a staff, anything within the healthcare system, they are so stretched and so stressed that bringing that dog in, they showed in that study, it also helped the staff. So if the staff is able to release a little bit, I'm sure that comes off when they go see their clients and they're run off their feet, right? Absolutely. I bet that that actually improves the interaction between the patient and the staff member. And yeah. 
You also were seeing something when you deployed therapy dogs in prisons. Talk about that. Yeah, so we've been in a number of different prisons. I'll, I'll give you two examples. One, we call animal-assisted intervention. In an animal-assisted intervention, or sorry, an animal-assisted activity. So there's animal-assisted activities and animal-assisted therapy. So animal-assisted activities are where you go into a, a prison, for example, and you share, basically you're there as a community volunteer and your dog, you're not doing therapy, but it can be therapeutic. So you go in, you have a visit and you talk about what have you, right? So we started a program, visiting program here with St. John's Ambulance Therapy Dogs at our local uh, regional psychiatric center. So our forensic prison, one of three of them in Canada. And so we did an evaluation and we found that that connection that individuals had to those animals were so important to them. They felt comfort, they felt support, and they talked about love, right? And for some of them, it came out, I mean, some of the quotes were so strong. And they talked about, you know, for the first time, I felt, while they were incarcerated, I felt like someone was with me and kind of on my side, right? And that's money. I mean, that's huge. Some of these people have been incarcerated for 20 plus years and hadn't seen a dog in that long. So that in itself, right? So that visiting program showed um, really, really positive. And then there's also animal-assisted therapy. We did this at that prison as well, at that forensic center. And we saw the same types and things. And most important was that connection, the connection that individuals had with the dogs. And they talked about it as giving them hope for the future, being validated in what they were as even as human beings, being able to open up to the dogs in other ways that they haven't been able to. So there's just there's just so much that can happen there with the dog, like we said, because they don't judge or they're not perceived to be judging. Right. And one of the prisons we were in, um, a medium security we also found that they talked a lot about freedom when they were with the dogs. And this is a program I run. I co-started a program with Dr. Darlene Chalmers at the University of Regina. We go into a prison and we bring in the dogs and we do our programming, what have you. It's a lot of training, but it's also for people who have overdosed and around addiction. So it's the hands-on and then it's also reflecting on that. But it really has been that idea of freedom that when I'm with the dogs, I don't think about, I feel normal. I feel like I'm on the outside. It reminds me of what goal I have in my future. And we just put a meme out on our social media today. I'm just, it's a really short one. I just printed it off because this was one of our participants. And he said, I think this is so strong. He said, I had hit bottom. I had hit the bottom. I felt I was missing something important that all humans crave, non-judgmental non love and companionship. Working with therapy dogs, Annabelle and Subi, gave me hope and warmth in a place that most often felt cold and callous. I mean, a dog can do that. That's powerful, absolutely. Incredibly powerful, right? And that, that that's kind of like the the... Same reason why you would use a therapy dog to help treat addiction, right? It helps that person understand that you know, you're dealing with something that, that not using the same chemicals that I'm using and still gives you that burst of light that gives you that burst of hope, right? Yeah. You know, I always talk about, 
like from the very beginning when, when I started in this field, I've talked about, I feel like the dogs open up the heart like this little, little bit. And then that allows the service providers to work with that. And no matter what situation I've been in, I just consistently feel like the dogs do that. So we had worked in, um, we had taken, I had taken Annabelle, the one who mentioned in that, that meme there, that quote from Todd, uh, to a methadone clinic, right? And they, we were working with a patient who was really hard to engage. And they thought, well, maybe if you bring in the therapy dog, this will get her to come, right? And, and, and yeah, so we met the first time, she came the first time and she met Annabelle and it was like, zoom, right? It was like, I could not separate those two. Annabelle was a big bulldog and she sat on the, on the desk and she gave this woman a great big kiss. And it was just like, wow, they were so connected. And so fine, that half hour went by and the next week came along and she came back. So at first the staff were like, this, this is great. She came back and then she did two things. She brought cookies. She brought cookies for Annabelle, very low income, right? But she spent her money on those cookies and she said, I'm gonna leave them here for the next times I come back because I can always give Annabelle one. So, so, I mean, her service provider is great. The other thing she brought were pictures of her babies who are in care. She's an indigenous woman. She brought those pictures. So there's me as a therapy dog handler, there's Annabelle the dog, and then there's a service provider. Who do you think she showed the pictures to? Annabelle. Of course. And I'm convinced she would never have brought those pictures. She would never have brought those pictures to show me and her service providers who are Caucasian, who represent the system, even if I don't want to be part of that system, I represent that system, right? I'm a settler in my country here. So it is just beautiful. And then after she showed Annabelle, she showed me and she showed her service provider. So it's just, I just, <laughs> I go on story after story of that happening. And I think there's so much for us to learn from what happened in that moment, right? But okay, but the, that connection, how does that help that woman deal with her addiction? Right. So when we talk about addiction, we can think about what do people need, right? What is it that people need? So I know SAMHSA in the States, they have a model of recovery and they talk about home and community and they have these pillars right? These are what people need. Or in the study I was telling you about before about Indigenous um, culture. So we talk about um, hope, belonging, meaning, and purpose, that people need these to move forward in their healing journey, right? So at that methadone clinic, the same one, we did a study with individuals who had pets, who were on their healing journeys from addiction. And we asked them, what is it about the pet? Like you're identifying yourself as really connected to your pet, but how, the question you're asking, how is that helping? And what we found was they said, those pets did something that we as humans could not, or we chose not to, right? And again, sometimes I think so much of it comes down to that feeling of love. 
that feeling of connection. Being connected to something is so important for people who are disconnected. And we see that with the individuals we work with in the prison just over and over again, how disconnected they are from so many things, even their own family. And then they're starting to open up with the dog, right? That, that dog gives them that unconditional, unjudgmental dog. And can I, I'm just going to give you one example because I love this story. It's about Annabelle again. And this was with a prisoner at Drum Heller. He had been in for over 20 years. And we had five people in our cohort um, that had just overdosed in the last couple months. So, and the, the warden asked us to come in. This is when we first started the program. And so he was really gruff, really, really rough and just didn't really say much, but he was there, which was awesome, right? And then we were kind of doing an obstacle course on the second day because the whole thing is about getting them to work with the dog. And the only way you're going to work with that dog is if you connect with them and you have that, if you want to say energy, you have that presence. And in particular with Annabelle, she would not listen to you. She would not walk with you unless you had some kind of authority. She was a leader and you had to be a very strong leader. So... She, we were doing this obstacle course and she's on one side. We had a badminton net. She's on one side and this individual, Raymond, was on the other side. There's myself and Darlene, the social worker that does a program with me. And he was like, all he had to do was bring Annabelle under this badminton net. So he'd be like, Annabelle, come. Like this really rough and gruff. And, and Annabelle's like, I'm so not moving. And Darlene and I, each of us just encouraged him like, Raymond, just be yourself. Be your authentic self. Just be yourself. And then I think it, was, it felt like forever. It was probably two minutes. And all of a sudden it went from like, Annabelle, come to like, Annabelle, come. And then what did she do? Of course, she went to him. And they were inseparable after that. In fact, he was able to see, he was able to look outside himself. We, at the end of this, a whole bunch of prisoners come and they watch these five prisoners do an obstacle course with the dogs, right? And Annabelle decided midway, she was walking on this beam and he, Raymond was at the back of the gym. There's probably 50, 50 individuals in there. He was at the back and Annabelle sat down on this balance beam and just was like, no, I'm not doing this anymore. I didn't, and I'm always watching for the animal welfare and that she's comfy and the other dogs are comfy. I didn't even have time to say, okay, Annabelle's going to have a rest now and, you know, go get her. He came running from the back. He scooped her up. <laughs> She's a big 60-pound bulldog. Took her to the back, sat down in that chair. And I have this picture of her sitting on him with the biggest smile and his grin. And I thought, you've connected. Like, you've made this. And as a researcher, I think sometimes there's things I'll never understand. And maybe we're not supposed to. Maybe it's that love and connection. It's just, it is what it is, right? And we still have contact with him today, and he's doing really, really well. And then that, that connection is what makes him decide that maybe if I stay more lucid, I'll still continue that connection. So tries to, that helps, that's what helps start weaning them off of their addiction. And imagine feeling love, feeling connection, feeling comfort, feeling like someone cared about you for the first time in 20 years. Well, you know, I, I find your study amazing. And I think, and I'm going to throw I cannot remember, and please forgive me because I may be quoting this wrong, but was there not a study that came out, I think, you know, the, the, the Veterans Association in America 
has has gone in and out, in and out, back and forth, whether or not they they believe in you know uh, animals that can help for PTSD or they can't. And I think the last go round, they were saying, well, they did a study and it didn't seem to make a difference. And I, I thought that was such a bunch of crap because I I know so many veterans who rely so heavily on their animals and their pets to help them deal with their PTSD. Talk a little bit more about just the animals and how they can help with PTSD. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it ranges from waking individuals up out of a nightmare. You know, there are so many things that the dogs can do. So we've had a number of studies and what we were able to do was look at so veterans who have PTSD, but also have an addiction. Right. And a lot of times that's an opioid because of all the pain medication they're on. And, and it's just natural. Right. Um, so what we were able to find is that uh, with the dog, their symptoms decreased for the PTSD and then also their alcohol use and their opioid use had decreased. And medical marijuana had increased. Right. Which is a good thing. It's not a bad thing. It's a good thing. Yeah, so they're going off the opioids and, and more towards the medical marijuana. So teasing it apart, because a lot of it's, it's all under that umbrella of mental health, right? But what we wanted to look at specifically was that addiction side and if the dogs helped as well. And they absolutely did. And what was really interesting, we also interviewed veterans um, about their pets, um, veterans who were, had PTSD and, and their pets. And what, what we really found was that, again, it's that connection and that bond because these veterans are isolated from their families, right? They're not getting out. Some of the veterans in our study, we followed them over three years and they talked about, I'm not even accountable to my own child, but I am to the dog because the dog is not judging me, right? So that comes in again, like those same types of themes come through. But what, one thing that's really interesting and we're finding more and more about, we have a postdoctoral fellow in our office, Lindsay Williamson, and she did a survey of the community, just a um, like a general survey, and she had scenarios. She had, what do you think about, you know, a veteran uh, with a service dog? What do you think about a general person with a physical disability with a service dog? And what do you think about a veteran who has an addiction with a service dog. And for the two groups, like just the veteran, the service dog with PTSD and, and a physical disability, yeah, they should have their dog. For the group, the veteran who also had an addiction, no, shouldn't have a dog. They did not have compassion towards that veteran. It goes back to that stigma that's so highly ingrained with addiction, which I've been in this field for so long. That's That finding is just coming out and it's, alarming but not surprising and what but what surprises me is that addiction touches all of us like all of us but there's just such a strong stigma against that still and that's something we need to we need to be addressing you would think that in the community of providers that are trying to help provide help they would think differently yeah and it it it's really interesting so we actually just finished a study with health canada a project and we were able to work over three years with ends up being 47 veteran, veteran organizations that 
gave input into their understanding of addiction. So we created an online course and it's free. It's uh, four hours, a four hour course about, and it's free and people could take it as service providers. So if you're a service provider offering a service dog to someone, you may not know anything about addiction. You may be using words that are very stigmatizing and we'll turn that veteran away without realizing that, right? So we made this course and it's been going really, really well. And we're super excited to be able to share that out in the community. That's great. Look, you know, you work with a dog named Subi in the Veterans Research Program before his passing, sadly, in 2019. Tell us a little bit about Subi. Oh, Subi. Oh my gosh. He was a boxer and he was he loved people. He just loved people so much. He was super calm. So I started working with him as a therapy dog. And then when I started working on the veteran project, uh, to understand what the veterans were working with their dogs, I trained him as a service dog over a year and a half because I needed to understand. I can't study this if I don't understand it. Subi had this ability, and I think this is so important when you talk about therapy dogs, is Therapy dogs are, like I said, these dogs that just really, really like people and they're outgoing, right? But as you work in the community, you they learn their role more and more. So, for example, a lot of time in prison with him, he would start to understand. He would have visual cues. He would have um, things he would smell around, say, anxiety, right? And so he would be able to sniff that out and he would just lead me to people in different situations as he got older in age and just just became a pro at what he was doing and one of our experiences we had a a horrific crash here a bus crash a couple of years ago and um 16 individuals from a junior a hockey team had died in a lot of yeah so that was horrific for the community so there was a um community memorial at the um at the arena, right? So a couple of days later. So the therapy dogs, a number of teams were asked to go and we did. There were also therapy dogs at the hospital, uh, a lot with the with the players that were there. But we went to the community and and uh Subi was very much a veteran by this point, really good at what he did. But this it was really interesting because he visited with a lot of people. But about four times, and we were in an arena, like a hockey rink. So you're down, you know, you go down the stairs and there's a long roll, right? So it's happened about four times. We would come down the stairs and you would see people and it's, I'm not, I'm not going to squish to the middle of the rope, but he pulled. And so I had the leash still and he was just like, he would come to the end of the road and he was gone. And it was like, okay, like he had a mission and he would jump up with his front legs gently on an individual. In all four of those individuals he chose were just super stoic. Like they were showing nothing. And so I just wonder if they were just emitting, you know, those hormones around stress or whatever he was so attuned to that he went to them. Because all four of those situations, it was the same. And it was just, it was just amazing to watch and kind of take in and then think about later. The other thing with that, which I haven't mentioned is so important, is the animal welfare component, right? Because you can only imagine how overwhelming that was for him to provide that much support to all of these people 
Uh, I know what it was like for me, and I'm just at the end of the leash saying a few things once in a while, right? Um, so yeah, so we make sure that there's always animal welfare and that they are they have very balanced lives. So I remember coming home that night. We got home really, really late. Um, there was a lot of peer support in the car for us with the handlers. The dogs slept together. I, it, it's just amazing how they kind of bonded. And I remember sleeping just on the futon that night with him because he was so, he was just exhausted from everything he gave. And it was like, oh, just tears me up, right? And I couldn't even talk about that for quite a while after because just to see the beauty and what he gave of himself and the other dogs as well was, it's just, sometimes I shouldn't use this word as a researcher, but it's almost magical in a way. Wow. And beautiful. Yeah, you know, are there different breeds that you think are better suited for this type of work? No, we have every breed imaginable. Um, and from therapy dogs to service dogs, again, lots of different breeds. I remember in the very beginning when I started with the veteran project and the service dogs. So I met a bunch of veterans and they had their service dogs. And I was just, I didn't even know really what this was all about. And they invited me out. And I remember quite a, quite a tall, larger man. He had a little chihuahua. And I was like, here's me judging, <laughs> thinking, that's not a service dog. Like, you need a golden retriever. You need a lab or whatever. And so we went and we had coffee. And I, it was my job to learn what, what that dog did for him. It was really interesting because he had a really big truck. And he traveled a lot in Toronto. And he had extreme road rage to the point where they were really afraid that he would severely harm someone. So he had this little dog, the little dog that was able to sit on the console. And that dog was able to detect when he was getting heightened. And as soon as he did, the little dog was there licking his ear or what have you, right? So that makes sense. You want a little dog to be able to do that. You don't want a big dog jumping on you, right? You're driving. So... Yeah, that was, I'm sure glad I had that experience early on because that experience hasn't left me in, in how I did judge and know any breed. And, you know, even I've always learned. So when I would go to an addiction treatment center with the dogs to visit, just to visit, um, I have bully breeds. I always have had bully breeds. Just I like them. And there is sometimes there is an appreciation of the bully breeze if people have, you know, just has that motto kind of whatever with some of the people. But what doesn't go over well in a treatment center that I didn't think about is a German Shepherd. And because those are police dogs and a lot of these individuals have been chased down by a police dog. So there's a fear of German Shepherds. So, yeah, to answer your question, any breed, but it's also so individual specific of what somebody, something someone may like or may not like, right? And how they connect to that animal. And how tough is it to train a dog to be a therapy dog? What's that process like? You know what? I always say a therapy dog really is born, right? It's, it's that, do they like people? Are they that extrovert if they were a person? And then they get basic obedience, like, you know, sit, stay. And the therapy dog test itself um, is, you know, when we just did one. So you have to get your dog super excited. And then you're able to say, for me, I'd be like, sit. And they have to be like, okay, now I have to calm down. Because you never know what kind of situation you're going to be in, right? So, yeah, it's about having that basic obedience. But just 
really, really enjoying being out with people. That's that's the main thing. And, you know, I guess, you know, that I've heard that, that term, you know, a lot of times that, you know, dogs will mirror the energy of the trainer or mirror the energy of the person. Ex- explain that a little bit. Um, you know, I almost think about, I think about that with horses. We've done some work with horses. I almost think about the dogs as responding to the energy. I feel like the dogs are always assessing what's going on, right? They understand and they're, they're trying to navigate what's going on in the family dynamic or out in the community or what have you. Um, I have one example. It's an Annabelle example again. And this was two years ago when my dad passed, which was incredibly difficult for me. But I had three dogs then, um, two boxers and the bulldog, Annabelle. And so I was off kilter. I was not balanced. I was incredibly sad. I was I was the leader in the house. They're always following me. I'm the one that feeds them. I'm working out in the community with them all the time. And all of a sudden, I'm out of commission. I'm moving, but I'm not in it, right? And it was really interesting because about two weeks after and throughout this time, it just kind of gradually grew. And there was, um, Annabelle started bullying the other dog. And I was like, one day, then she went after one of them. And this is not, that wasn't typical. Um, And then it kind of hit me going, oh my gosh, get it together, Colleen, because look what's happening, what you're doing to the energy here. And it was just, for me, it was a beautiful example of how in tune they are with what's going on. And I was so in tune with Annabelle in particular. Um, Yeah, so then I was just like, okay, I need to, you know, I still need to grieve, but I need to get together a little bit. And as soon as I made that realization, uh, the house started to even out again. You know, I find it's very interesting, especially like right now, we're living in a society, I know it's happening in Canada, probably as much as it is in the United States, where um, we're coming out of two years of COVID, uh, highly stressed time, highly anxious time. We're headed right now into what could possibly be World War III, highly stressed time, lots of anxiety. Your pets then who mirror that probably would mirror that anxiety. I mean, what do you, what do you do to help your pet? You know, I know probably number one thing is calming yourself down, but I mean, how do you help them not pick up on the stresses just from society? Yeah, it's a good question. Right. Um, and I'm going to go back to think like a dog, the best that you can of understanding who that dog is and what they need. So dogs like consistency, right? Just like kids, they like that consistency. So if you are able to provide that for them in their routine throughout the day, there was one, I found this really interesting. We work with such a large team and one of the dog behaviorists at our vet college here, you know, I always thought everybody was talking about uh, separation anxiety, that the dogs are going to be so anxious because people are going back to work, right? And it was like, yeah, that kind of makes sense. And for her, with the dog, she's saying, she's like, it's not separation anxiety. If you think about what the dog needs, the dog needs sleep. And what we've been doing is interrupting their sleep. They're not getting that deep sleep. They can sleep 16 hours a day, right? When we're at work, they're sleeping. They're not partying, they're sleeping. But when we're home, I'm getting up, I'm walking around, I'm noisy, I'm on the phone, what have you. They're not getting that same sense of sleep. So I just... I had, I had shared that a couple of months ago and that really stuck with me because it's like, yeah, I'm trying to think of 
how they're experiencing the world. But again, from my lens, I have to think about what's important for them. So, yeah. <laughs> okay, I got you. So because because we were home and in their way so much, they their life was kind of off kilter. They got used to the off kilter. And now you've got to help them reacclimate to their lives. So even with EJ, the boxer that I have now, we got him right before COVID. We were very careful during COVID and still are. We did not have people at our house for almost two years, right? Unless someone had to come here. We didn't see family. He didn't see people. So he saw them up to a year, just almost a year. He had done some, a lot, actually quite a bit of prison work with me. And then he had nothing then he tore an ACL, then he tore a second ACL. So he was in a crate for a long time because he had double knee surgery. And oh my gosh. So you can imagine he was not socialized. He had it in him because he did prior to a year. But what we did with him is just anything to increase his confidence, anything to increase the confidence. So we were out at um, grocery store and they had balloons on sale, like a helium balloon. So we're like, let's bring that home for $3 and put it in the living room. And he's like, oh, no, you know, and then worked with him. And the next day he was walking around with it tied to his collar. But just any little thing to give them confidence uh, is really, really good. We just started a scent course with him so he can detect certain things. It's just fun. And again, lets him use his brain because his nose is his brain. Right. So, yeah. Now, what, what kind of research are you working on now? Is there anything exciting coming down the pipe? Right now, we just finished a project and we're expanding this one about uh, pets in the workplace. So what yeah. are the policies around pets in the workplace? I know in the States, I think you're a little bit further than we are here. Some companies even offer pet insurance. And this is important. If pets are part of our family, we need to consider this. So we have, yeah, that's what we've been up to. Absolutely. Well, I got to tell you, tell me a little bit about before we go. I'm almost out of time, but tell me about the the positive, positive canine connection campaign. Positive canine connection. So, yeah, we've started that campaign really to identify the human animal bond and that we recognize that pets are part of our family. They're parts of our lives. And we have to recognize that they are important to us and that we're important to them. And yeah, that's what it's all about. So we're, we just uh, worked with um, Daniel Hearn. He's from Hardwinox Talks. He does a podcast here in the city. And he's an individual with lived experience of recovery from addiction. And we had a little bit of funding from the Canadian Center on Substance Use and Addiction. We put together like six modules for service providers in just recognizing that if you're an addiction service provider, Ask your client if they have a pet. Just ask them that question. And that may go somewhere that um, they hadn't considered before. Wow. Well, I got to thank you so much, Colleen, for being a part of the show today. Lots of great information. I appreciate that article that you put out. I hope that uh, gets reprinted multiple times so people can understand that there is truth behind the bond between us and our pets. Absolutely. Thank you. For sure. You take care of yourself. You stay well. And of course, you always have a home here wherever you want to come back. Thank you. Yes, ma'am. Thank you so much. And thank you for tuning into this edition of Free Thinking with Montel. Thanks for joining me on Free Thinking with Montel. Please make sure you're subscribed and hit the bell to be notified when new episodes post each week. 
We'd love to hear your feedback, so please send us your comments. Thank you.